Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I talked to May Habib, CEO of Cordoba. Cordoba helps companies take control of their user-facing content and allows them to produce more impactful and consistent copy at scale. So in their content AI product, they're able to see the emotional impact of words. So May says that emotional resonance is important to them. So for May and the team at Cordoba, they try to measure emotional resonance in two ways. They look at pain avoidance and delightful interactions. Their product tries to solve a pain point in a permanent way, as well as making cross-functional collaboration easier. So when it comes to thinking about their product and features, their conversations about emotional resonance are intentional. As product managers though, we talk a lot about customer delight and having empathy as key qualities. We really wanna solve all of our customers' pain points and make their lives easier. But how often do we focus on this concept of emotional resonance? But how often do we focus on this concept of emotional resonance? And how do we measure that? Do we get that in a form of a qualitative or quantitative survey? This podcast, Product Love, focuses on what makes our users love our product so much. And a lot of that maybe has to do with emotional resonance. Well, that's enough chit chat for me. Feel free to tell me how your product deals with emotional resonance. You can reach me at eBodic on Twitter or eBodic at pendo.io. And remember, we're giving out t-shirts to winners every week. So join in on the fun, subscribe to Product Love. So welcome lovers of product. Today I am here with May Habib, CEO and co-founder of Cordoba. May, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Yeah. So we started the company almost five years ago now. Prior to that, I worked at a sovereign wealth fund in Dubai, uh, working mostly in emerging markets. And before that, I was a banker in New York. So talk to me about the inspiration behind Cordoba. What brought you there? Yeah. So Cordoba is a strings management platform, Eric. So that's all of the content that lives across your product, interface, error messages, onboarding text, across web, mobile. It's all in a single place and it makes it possible for messaging and content to be edited, revised and, and added. The inspiration came from our seeing customers struggle with this problem. We started life in localization where every single little piece of content needs to get into another language. And customers began asking us if they could use our product to change copy in English. And our product offering has really uh, grown from there. I ran my college paper and grew up with my nose in a book. So words have always been how I interact with the world. And, and now our product really helps customers manage all the words in their products. So let's jump back to your background. You know, first college paper, right? What college and what was that like? It was the Harvard Crimson. I was chair of the news board. We had about 400 reporters. It was super intense. It was a 60-hour-a-week job, slept on the couch in the newsroom. But it was a very defining experience. From there, I was a banker. And in a lot of ways, being a banker is a lot easier uh, than being a CEO, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Talk to me about that transition from banker to CEO and co-founder. What was that like? What did you learn? You know, what did you expect that you didn't see and what didn't you expect? 
Yeah, good question. What's nice about any of these really structured career paths, uh, a consultant, a banker, even a doctor, the universe of what it takes to be successful is very clearly defined. You do X, the result should be Y. As a CEO in the B2B SaaS world, especially at a startup, the ground beneath you and the target market ahead of you, they're just always in a constant state of flux. So that's challenging. It's also more challenging from a teamwork environment. And this was definitely new to me for your question. As a banker or as an investor, you're working with people who are built a lot like you. So your peers have similar mindsets. They've gone to kind of through similar types of formative experience to get to wherever you are in the career. As a startup CEO, you're actually, you're working with lots of different people all the time. So your buyers are cross-functional. And then internally also, you've got salespeople and marketing people and designers and engineers and humans with very different functions and makeups and backgrounds and mindsets. And so it's much more challenging to all be on the same page. And I do think there's a heightened level of self-awareness that's required to be kind of brought to the job. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit more about that, about being on the same page. You know, one of the things I see with a lot of larger startup teams or or smaller startup teams as they become larger startup teams is that lack of connection, that lack of communication in a lot of cases where, you know, people might not always be on the same page. How do you make sure that stays true? How do you make sure your team always stays on the same page? Yeah, I think the the, the biggest thing is everyone being self-aware of just how much over-communication is necessary and how even with that, there could be some communication failures. I think being really open about how the basis of real trust and real trust being about always assuming the best intentions, that's got to be kind of the the framework in which we're all operating. But I've been in situations where, you know, for a team, the OKRs are very clearly defined and everyone has signed up on. We're, We're talking about a very specific OKR and and the team's OKRs. It's a one-on-one and we can still walk away from a meeting actually having different ideas of what the next steps are. And so we document a lot, we talk a lot, and we try to laugh a lot too in terms of, you know, where there are miscommunication. And this has been kind of a shift in our culture where there are miscommunication gaps, actually realizing that it's, it's a failure to close the loop or a failure to really articulate again what is my understanding of what just happened? What's your understanding of what just happened? Can we document this? It is so hard to all be on the same page. And, you know, we're a team of 40. I know you guys are, you know, 100 plus. So it's challenging at at every stage. And it's a big part of what we're trying to work on. Because you go from this like little band of people where there's a lot of tribal knowledge to, you know, 40 people. And that's already a few degrees removed from the thing that just happened. Yeah, the podcast team here at Product Love is two part-time people. The Nintendo <laughs> team is two fifty. Yeah, so different yeah. different skills there. So you know, as your CEO and co-founder now, talk to me about advice or experience that prepared you most for this role, whether it's from your journalism background or from your baking background. And then, you know, what was a challenge or a struggle that you didn't expect? I think the the thing that really prepared me for this role have been just all of the hard experiences because you need an incredible amount of stamina to to build a company more than certainly I expect. I knew it was going to be hard, but it is hard. So many different constituencies, so many different pulls on your time. It's 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 real real challenging, and and just having the stamina to just get up, put on a smile, and really have the same energy to bring to all of the various challenges every day. It's a really big part of the job. 
and unexpected. And that's kind of what was going to be required. I think the parts of my career, and they've all, all my jobs have been pretty challenging, but the, you know, especially the late nights in banking, early mornings in PE, all of the travel that definitely helped me build up the appetite for kind of the the level of work and commitment that uh, building a company requires. So how long have you been doing this now? Uh, It'll be, let's see, five years in April. Oh, wow. wow. So, so it, yeah. <laughs> it's always interesting when you really think about it. Like when they, when oh, yeah. Think. If you really think about the numbers, absolutely. Yeah, it's a long time. So what, is it, what does it feel like? Does it feel like five most days? Does it feel like two? Does it feel like 20? It feels, it, it's funny. It's felt like 18 months for the past, like basically since 18 months, <laughs> uh, which is good, I think. You, you graduate to newer challenges and newer problems. So Obviously, the you know, ARR has grown, but so has the team, so has our market, so has our product. And so it's always fresh. It's always challenging. And you, kind of, you, you get to graduate to a new set of problems at every stage. So I, I heard from you on, on a Saster podcast, I believe, that you know, startups, you believe startups can start with enterprise customers. Can you talk to me about how they can do that and the challenges of starting at the enterprise? It's a good question. I definitely want to start off saying I don't think there's a canonical right answer to this question, as much as folks may want to make it so. There's only what's right for your product, your buyer, your target market, your vision of where you want the product to go, how much room you think you have to grow ACV within that market and buyer set. So we, we were opportunistic and we built from there, which is why it was appropriate for us. The enterprise buying motion, it really suited our early team. And again, that could have been a different case different outcome. The product market fit was such that allowed us to go out market much faster. And actually our go-to-market and then messaging is still catching up with that. So we're doing a rebrand now and building new messaging and collateral around the more upmarket offering and customer base. And, And that's had to catch up with where the product and the business was actually going. And it comes with challenges for sure. All of the expected ones around product robustness, security requirements, successful implementations, longer buying cycle, et cetera. But also some unexpected ones that I think, you know, we don't as an industry talk about as much. I do think hiring mistakes are more costly for startups who sell to the enterprise than startups who don't, for example. And that's something you learn from experience. And, you know, I wish we had been a bit more self-aware of that. But, you know, this is stuff that you learn as, as you make mistakes. Talk to me about why hiring mistakes are more costly. Yeah, I think you're, you're entrusting your customer base, right, to new faces. And when you are making the handoff from, you know, an early relationship that could be with one of the co-founders to a new executive relationship, it's like, you know, not just giving your baby to a nanny, but like kind of someone's adopted your child. And so, you know, there are certainly, and there's certainly one aspect of that, which is, you know, kind of clawing a founder's fingers away from part of the business. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm really talking about, you know, just the level of empathy, intellect, experience, business depth that's required when you hand off a relationship like that to, to a new person. And so you want to make sure that you've chosen the right person. In a self-service freemium product, you know, a hire doesn't work out, hasn't really touched a big part of the revenue base, potentially. And so I do think mistakes are a little less costly there. So, I mean, a lot of it comes down to a smaller customer base, bigger impact if one thing gets screwed up, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the other things you talk about is absolute ubiquity and customer delight. Talk to me about those two concepts and why they're so relevant to product management. 
Yeah, well, ubiquity is, is certainly very relevant to our product management. It's an important concept for us because we're a product that pulls content from many different sources and consolidates it into one. That's a big part of our value prop. So the fact that at PayPal, there are 200 GitHub repositories and all of that user-facing content can be edited in one place, that's very important. And it plays a big role in what delights customers about our product. So ubiquity can mean different things to different PM orgs. And, you know, delight and being delightful to customers is a big part of what we work on. But like with any ambitious product, there's stuff that frustrates too, right? Like to talk super directly. The job of the PM org is to work really hard to make sure the ratio of delight to frustration is super unbalanced towards the happy side. So that's kind of what we mean by customer delight. So talk to me more about apps, right? How you create applications that emotionally resonate with customers. So it's funny, I mean, in our product, in our content AI product, there are fantastic tools that allow you to see how the words are actually, what kind of emotional impact the words are having on the experience that your users are having. So emotional resonance is something that's very important to us at a meta level. Emotional resonance of our product to our customers, that's always hard in in B2B. I think we do this in a couple of ways. And in, in B2B enterprise, you know, this is not a a lightweight consumer product. So kind of emotional resonance, I think, has to be very real. But our couple of ways are, one, pain avoidance, right? Did Cordova help me solve something in a permanent way that used to be a pain in my ass? I think that has to be a big part of how we create emotional resonance with customers. Secondly, does it do it in a way that makes my collaboration with people on other teams easier? And I, I think the insight here is that In the large companies that we sell to, the biggest payoff for most people at work is a positive interaction with their colleagues. And it's why we all, quote unquote, love Slack, right? We don't love Slack. It's it's about the other humans that we interact with on Slack and how it makes us feel closer to them. So our emotional resonance, and we do think about this very explicitly when we uh, are talking about product and features, are we taking a big part of what is painful about their job away? And then are we making the collaboration piece easier and more delightful? So talk to me about differentiating between what customers want and what they really need and how that fuels your product direction. Well, I feel like I'm cheating answering this question because it's super easy for for me. It's money, right? Would they pay for it? That is a need. (laughs) Do they, would it not change how much they pay for it? That is a want. And, you know, it's much harder when you don't have, you know, an early PM or a co-founder actually able to ask, you know, I can ask all of our customers, would you pay more at our renewal if we built that? And, you know, it's not always asked in that kind of very explicit way, but we have a very good idea of what actually increases ACV if we build it versus what doesn't. But this gets way harder later uh, where there are more layers between, you know, the actual holder of the relationship with the customer and the PM roadmap. And of course, what I'm talking about here is, is definitely kind of you know, ACVs of 100K or above. And it's going to be very different for customers or for PM orgs who have thousands of customers or, or hundreds of thousands of customers. But I, I do think in kind of high ACV B2B enterprise SaaS, there can be no other metric than money. So th- th- does, that end up, <laughs> does that mean you end up charging them more? Like uh, if they're willing well, to pay for it, is the price increase so, constant? So we don't always know. We don't always actually act on that. But what we're trying to get a good sense of is, you know, are we spending the really precious 
build time. It's just 10 weeks and a quarter, right? There's really, when you really sit down to think about it and, and you're ruthless about it, you don't have that many days in a quarter that are real build days. And so, you know, are we building something and are we spending time on something that is actually increasing the value of what people, of what we're providing? And, and is, it, is that going to translate to a higher ticket item or not? Whether we charge is actually besides the point. Yeah, no, completely understand. I was just curious about your approach. Yeah. <laughs> you know, customers after a little while figure it out. You know, they'll just be like, yeah, sure, I'll pay for it because, you know, sure. it's not going to affect my price. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm sure in some cases it does. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So talk to me about hiring on the product management side, you know, and what you look for. What what are essential skills for product managers? It's a good question. So I'm a co-founder, CEO, who used to lead product, right? And now we have a team. So I think what will be useful is to answer this question, as you phrased it, not for myself, but, you know, the PMs who work with founders who used to lead product. And there are obvious skills that your listeners definitely know already. The, the prioritization, the scoping, working with product designers, the communication of the roadmap internally and to customers. But I do think that other than this, you know, there's kind of a non-obvious, very high leverage, massive task that needs to come off the co-founder's plate for, for the PM org to scale. And that's the marketing competitive research. And it's not obvious and it's something that we coach on internally, but just as the PM is the nexus for the flood of customer requests from CS and the massive backlog of what me and my co-founder have wanted to build for the last two years, there's also the need to bring an outside view of what others are doing and, and who else can or is trying to move into our space. And cultivating that intuition or almost sixth sense of what the market wants can be a huge asset to a PM. And, and I, I do think it's something that needs to very be consciously cultivated because it is they get pulled into so many directions once they're in that kind of first non-founder PM role. So how, how hard was it for you giving up product? You know, it was, given that, you know, there was so much to do on the go-to-market side, it wasn't super hard. I think we've also done a pretty good job in how we kind of execute on products. So I feel very, very involved on the newer parts of the roadmap that I want to be very, very involved in. And I'm very confident that the stuff that we're building elsewhere in the product is done so in a really high quality way. So you know, uh, there are plenty of features that I'm not seeing until they are production in production. That's the vast majority, actually, which is great. Um, I definitely think that's a level of maturity that we wanted us to get to. And we are there now. Yeah, that, that is definitely interesting. I, I remember uh, a little while ago, wandering through this uh, beach in Santa Barbara, talking with a friend of mine about, you know, when a product guy, when a product co-founder gives up product, and there's a new head of product in place. How much control do they really have over the direction mm -hmm. of the product, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Absolutely. in a lot of cases, the vision to some extent is already baked, right? Do you, yep. It sounds in your case that there's more than just kind of the edges, so to speak, to tweak. They have more responsibility, authority for overall direction. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I do believe so. I mean, we've got kind of the the big quarterly conversations and our 10 weeks of what we're building and we, we define 10 weeks and there's always a, a couple more weeks that you can eke out but we define 10 weeks pretty concretely so across streams and across use cases in our product you know what is it that we want to ship and you know there's a lot of 
our vision and our intuition and our conversations with customers that makes it into those planning meetings. And it's two to three weeks of planning to get there as well. So, you know, I'm very confident that all of the, and there's a lot, I'm not saying that, you know, we kind of come up with this plan and the PM is just executing. There's a lot of creativity also in kind of what, how some of these features get built. But yeah, I would say that within a, a framework of kind of co-founder approved vision, RPM does have quite a bit of uh, leeway. Okay, so overall framework and they provide guidance, so to speak, in the general direction. Is that a good way to talk about it? Yeah, think about it? yeah. And, and there are weekly check-ins, yeah. So let's jump back to the skills for product managers. What else do you believe is essential skills for product managers? Well, I think for the team in general, ruthlessness and empathy in kind of equal measure as opposite as those things might sound. You know, I mentioned our our 10-week roadmap. And once we've agreed on it, it's really about ruthless execution and prioritization to get, you know, the real 10 weeks of build time out of that. We have to be ruthlessly eliminating distractions. And there'll be a ton of distractions, especially as sales, you know, lands bigger and bigger customers. We've signed Apple. And what did Apple say at this last meeting? Well, maybe we fit that back in. So it is really important to once we've agreed on what we've agreed to, that changes to that are felt with the enormity of what they are. If there is a week that we're swapping with for something else. On the empathy side, you know, even while kind of internally, this like little product team is very ruthless, we're communicating with real empathy to customer success because customer success is going to have a very strong emotional tie to what customers are telling them. And we need to communicate with empathy to them when we're telling them about which personas are important to us and why, which buyer segments we've decided to emphasize versus others. And that requires, I think, you know, a completely different tone and mindset shift to have that conversation. We also get on the phone with customers when we're talking about, you know, what of their kind of dream roadmap is getting built and what isn't getting built, especially if we've made a change in what they thought was going to be happening. So we really have been trying, especially the last few quarters, to build a roadmap around the customers who who most can't live without us and expand the list of things that we offer them. Because even in B2B enterprise, which can be very focused, there are a lot of different use cases. And certainly there are a lot of different use cases of the Cordova product. And so we have to be very self-aware of, of what we're building, who we're building it for. And that requires some ruthlessness. (laughs) Yeah, I like that, a combination of empathy and ruthless prioritization because there's a fact of the matter that you have limited resources. So without ruthless prioritization, you're you're not going to be able to deliver a product that meets the needs of your customers. Hence, you know, it doesn't matter how empathetic you are if you deliver something that's not going to help them. It's interesting, the combination of those two skills and the balance between those two skills. Do you see that as as a challenge for product managers in general? Yeah, because you really have to be self-aware of when you're switching the mindset on and off, right? So a PM can go from a technical conversation with a couple of back-end engineers on, you know, what the kind of tech story is behind a user journey going to be or, or tech choices with our CTO and co-founder to literally their very next meeting is the CS team going through their top feature requests for the next month. And, you know, the, the tone has to shift in like 30 seconds. And so if you're not really self-aware about, you know, what their mindset is going to be, really hard to kind of come off of that, you know, engineering tone to talk to CS in a way that, you know, they can then go back to their 
customers and, and communicate really clearly, crisply, and on their part, empathetically to our users. Got it. So talk to me about when you look at product teams as a whole, what values should product teams have in place to make sure they're successful? I think it really depends. The answer depends on, you know, is it B2B? Is it B2C? Is it enterprise? Is it mid-market? Is it self-serve? You know, I can really only answer for what we do and kind of advise on or, or tell you a little bit about kind of values that have, have driven us. I think we have we've prioritized building for customers that have bought into our vision of the future. And our vision of the future is that it is too hard today to manage content in a coherent way. It is there's too many sources of content for any one person within an org to say, you know, here's how we need to sound, here's our brand, and actually have that consistently applied. You need AI to do that. And the the customers who have bought into that vision, the kind of the, the PayPal's of the world who have said, we've got user-facing content that lives in literally hundreds of places and we need a place to be able to act on things that we want to change and to really understand how we're coming across. Knowing as a having as a value that the customers that we need to care and build for are the ones for whom their vision matches our vision. That's a really big value of the team. And I think that is a guiding principle that kind of infuses everything else. And so I would say that's probably number one. And I think number two is speed. I think um, we all value getting something out and getting feedback versus spending, you know, another three weeks and another cycle getting to, to absolute perfection. And in enterprise, I do think that has definitely saved us a lot of build time as customers kind of implement a feature into their process and continue to give us feedback on it. And I think that has made a big difference also in kind of how fast we've made progress in a lot of the the important features that are key to customers today, like our bias detection and our plagiarism detection that we've shipped last quarter. So that's a good segue into a little bit more about Cordoba. You know, I, I think of, you know, localization as a big struggle that product teams has, have always had, but it's more than just localization, right? It's, it's strings management. Can you talk to me about why that's important to product teams and why it, it should be something that's on their radar? Yeah. User expectations are increasing, right? For, for both consumer and enterprise. There's, for example, with you guys, there's real competitive advantage for you for a user recognizing the Pendo tone of voice across all your products and all your channels and all the way in which you reach them. That's worth real money to you in terms of the value of the customer relationship. It's also worth real money in terms of PM and engineering time saved. Uh, we estimate about 12% of engineering time is spent on the actual UI. At larger orgs, we use our content AI tools, uh, which allows the team to automatically correct language, grammar, style issues, the plagiarism bias detection we just talked about, create style guides for copy that everyone in the org has to adhere to. There's massive savings in terms of people not having to review that content anymore. And it can be in the millions or tens of millions of dollars to have kind of AI really take that over. And the content improves over time. And so for a product team within a small org, it's really about you know faster changes, saving engineer time, all the product copy and being in one place. And you can start to see kind of our, our how we've expanded our go-to-market because in the enterprise, the value is that plus a huge reduction in the amount of manual review that needs to happen, especially in organizations where there are certain types of content that are under heavy 
regulation or uh, different types of compliance issues. So one thing, you know, sticking with Cordoba for a minute, one thing you mentioned I wanted to jump back to is a little bit about, you know, ruthless prioritization and how that affected customer success, right? So talk to me a little bit about customer success at Cordoba and how that interacts with the product teams. Yeah, really good question. Customer success is something that we've invested really heavily in. We had four CS people before we even had one salesperson. So it's definitely been something that I think has paid off really well for us. About 130% plus expansion rate, net of churn, very little logo churn. Uh, we've got a new incoming VP of CS who joins us next Monday. I'm very excited to have Asaf um, Barnier join the team to lead up CS. And, you know, he's very aligned with us on what makes CS very successful. And number one is there to be just very, very little tension between uh, CS and sales and have that be a supernatural handoff. One way that we've done it and, and how Asaf has done it his whole career too is to have solution architects really be both pre and post sale. And so the customers got this continuity across their experience with Cordoba with the same person who talked to them about the technical implementation, actually doing the technical implementation. And that's been really big for us. The second thing is CS and product being really closely aligned. And so that's CS knowing and not being in the dark about us shifting a schedule, something, deciding not to build roadmaps that we feel bring value to both existing customer bases and new prospects as well. So let's turn our topic of discussion to, you know, what you see in the future. So talk to me about upcoming trends you see in product management. Oh, I should go to more conferences and stuff. <laughs> I guess in terms of trends, you know, I'm seeing, and, and this comes from talking to other B2B founders and then also just kind of how customers how customer conversations have changed over the last couple of years that we've been having them. I think, especially in B2B, customers have really high expectations now of how their own workflows will be automated. And I do think for the way that we build products, it basically means that every product needs to be a platform. You've really got to think about features being extendable, everything having an endpoint that the customer themselves can kind of feed into or extract into their own process and things that your product does being automated through integrations with other solutions. I don't think that's a nice to have anymore. I think that's a must have. And I actually don't think that it, I think it's table stakes. I don't think it actually increases ACVs. So, you know, that I would be interested to know what you think, Eric, about that and whether you're seeing that as well. But you know, it's no longer differentiating to have a easy to integrate API or uh, a feature set that automates kind of internal processes at the customer. I think customers are starting to expect that. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I, I don't know if you have to have it right off the bat, but I, I think as the company grows, you know, you want to be able to support integration and a healthy ecosystem and exchange with other yep. parts of the enterprise and systems. Yep, yep, exactly. That's why I love your product cloud. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Uh, so talk to me, May, a little bit about yourself, you know, favorite product and why. Oh, it's definitely not going to be a B2B product. <laughs> Although, honestly, Namely has definitely made my life a lot easier since we got on it. So thanks to the Namely people. I think from a consumer perspective, I love consumer products. I love Marco Polo. I don't know if you've ever used that product. I have um, not. It is 
it's so good. It's basically like what early Snapchat was. And Snapchat is, you know, ghost town now. But Marco Polo is just, you know, literally the product I use on my phone the most after Slack, iMessage, WhatsApp. And it's just a very easy way to send a quick video to somebody. So with my mom, with my sister, with my friends, with my husband, it's kind of the closest 10 people to me I talk to on Marco Polo. They could probably get 120 bucks out of me a year if they wanted to. <laughs> well, we'll have to let them know that. So, so No, what? don't tell them. <laughs> <laughs> I will definitely have to check it out. Why, why do you think Snapchat's a ghost town? That, that was an interesting quote there. Yeah, I have uh, twin siblings who are 14 years old. There's like a massive age gap between us. And, you know, it's funny when the 14-year-olds are no longer using Snapchat, you know, the thing is absolutely dead. And, and they abandoned it probably, you know, 18 months ago almost. I think the just the, the publishing ecosystem and all of the noise and, and the very frequent product changes that they made took them away from the kind of essential feature that everyone loved, which is you open up the app and you're at the video and two clicks later, you've sent it to somebody, literally. And it's just so much harder to do that now. And you're bombarded with so much quote unquote content from people that you don't care about. And that I think, I think the monetization expansion of that roadmap really helped kill engagement. And now I open it up and, you know, I went from a hundred plus snaps to watch to literally four or five people who post regularly now, which is nuts because I have, you know, thousands of connections on Snapchat. Hmm, interesting. So what are the 14-year-old siblings doing now? That's so funny. Um, they're using this product called Yup, Y-U-P. It's, it, they're using it for homework, actually. It's kind of the, the thing that I've noticed their engagement level on go up a lot. And it's a math tutoring service that they get via this mobile app. Check it out. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I definitely see I, I, my, myself, I have an 18 year old daughter and, you know, Instagram still seems to be a big push there, right? That's one of the- Absolutely. Yeah. All the Snapchat traffic has gone yeah. to Insta- Instagram yeah. stories. Absolutely. I, I think so. So before I get to my final question, I, going back to journalism, right? Do you yeah. miss it? Oh yeah, absolutely. I do. It's, you know, what I love that I think we've recreated here is the sense of kind of urgency-driven camaraderie. And you definitely have that in a newsroom. A lot of startups actually have newsroom-level buzz, which I really love. I, I do miss kind of the very considered kind of step back that you have to take to write something that pushes a story forward. And, you know, startup land, it almost feels like a luxury. Like nobody has time to write you know, 700 words on why we made a certain decision or why this is now a strategy or why we're okay passing on that prospect or why we're now building this feature, right? And I do miss that piece of it. There's an intellectualism that a newsroom has that is very hard to find in a non-news related startup. Hmm. That's interesting, the, the whole intellectualism. I do like that, describing startups as having that newsroom level buzz. I like that. So. Yeah. So one final question for you, three words to describe yourself. Oh, I think uh, tenacious, tenacious, tenacious. <laughs> it's what it takes, I think, you know, and hopefully those aren't the words that describe me forever, Eric, but definitely at this point in the journey and this point in my life, that's 
kind of what what is pretty all encompassing about me. I don't give up. Oh, that's awesome. I, I can I can definitely vouch for that. <laughs> Thank you. It was great having you on the show. I appreciate your time. I enjoyed it too. Thanks, Eric. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.